Looking back on his life, a man recently shared this tender story with me. When I was growing up, my father was less active in the Church. He struggled with alcohol, and in his darkest moods would become harsh and accusing. He normally didn't object to Mom serving in the ward. She worked in primary for 38 years, and during much of that time she served in young women. She carried a heavy load. Her marriage was difficult, and now I know that she was discouraged at times, but I didn't know it then. I didn't realize until later that the sisters in our ward were her strength. She didn't work in Relief Society leadership, but she always attended the meetings, and she loved her friends there. I never thought of them as ladies of the Relief Society. They were simply Mom's sisters. They cared about her and loved her. She had all brothers and all sons. She found the sisters she wanted and needed in our ward. I know she shared her feelings with them, feelings she couldn't express anywhere else. None of that seemed Relief Society to me then, but I understand now that it was. This son's memory of Relief Society touched my heart. Yes, Relief Society's members are women, but Relief Society does not only bless the women, it blesses each one of us. How has Relief Society blessed your life? I asked this question of President Hinckley. He responded, Relief Society has blessed my family and the family of my dear wife for some seven generations. Since the earliest days of the Church, our mothers and daughters have been taught of the obligations to those in distress. They have been schooled in the finer points of homemaking, encouraged in their spiritual development, and guided in the realization of their full potential as women. Much of this has taken place in Relief Society and then has been brought home to bless the life of each member of my family. I have my own sweet memories of playing under my grandmother's quilting frames as she and her Relief Society sisters stitched. I was young, but I knew that this was part of Relief Society, blessing the lives of others. I was mentored with love for Relief Society by my mother and my grandmother. I love Relief Society. I think I always have. Relief Society has helped me to know the Savior and to strengthen my love for Him and my Heavenly Father. My belonging to Relief Society has provided me with many opportunities to learn, to love, to serve, and to be filled with the love of the Lord in my life as I strive to keep my covenants, exercise charity, and strengthen my family. And so I ask again, how many ways has Relief Society blessed your life? Visiting the Missionary Training Center in Brazil, I asked the missionaries, tell me one thing you know about Relief Society. One elder said, casseroles. <laughs> Another answered, my mother and sister belong to it. Finally, one declared, it's the Lord's Organization for Women. He was right, but there's more. Relief Society is a fundamental part of the gospel. The year 1842 was extremely difficult for the Prophet Joseph Smith, former friends, 
turned on him. Other enemies wanted to abduct him from Nauvoo and blunt the growth of the Church. That same year, he organized the Relief Society to care for the poor and the needy and to save souls. President J. Reuben Clark, Jr. observed that amidst these trials, Joseph Smith turned to the Sisters for the consolation, for the uplift, of which he stood in such sad need at that time. This is a moving and humbling thought. A prophet of God seeking the solace of his Sisters, women to whom he had given the charge, charity never faileth. To me, this is echoes of those women who mourned with the Savior on Golgotha. Relief Society has blessed prophets' lives. How has it blessed yours? President Boyd K. Packer has said, The defenses of the home and the family are greatly reinforced when the wife and the mother and daughters belong to Relief Society. Close quote. Why? Because women are the heart of the home. My belonging to Relief Society has renewed, strengthened, and committed me to be a better wife, mother, and a daughter of God. My heart has been enlarged with gospel understanding and with love of the Savior and what He's done for me. So to you, dear sisters, I say, come to Relief Society. It will fill your homes with love and charity. It will nurture and strengthen you and your family. Your home needs your righteous heart. During a recent assignment to Peru, I visited the humble home of Brother and Sister Morales. It was filled with love. They are the parents of three children and have been members of the Church for just four years. Sister Morales has learned much in Relief Society. To help provide for their family and their missionary son, she took in washing and ironing. She helped with two children of a neighbor who had, left, who had to leave home to work. She supported her husband, who is struggling with kidney failure and was serving, as the, serving in the Elders' Quorum. They discussed the Heber J. Grant lessons together in preparation for his lesson. I asked her, Are you a visiting teacher? With a smile on her face, she responded, Oh, yes, Sister Parkin. I have four sisters. Two are less active, but I will love them back. Leaving their home, I noticed a sign above the door. It asked, did you read your scriptures today? Relief Society is blessing this home, this ward, this neighborhood. How has it blessed you? Belonging to Relief Society is critical for the newly baptized sister and, by extension, their families. While serving with my husband as he presided over the England-London-South Mission, I met many new converts, like Gloria, a single mother. When she joined the Church, she joined Relief Society. It was a safe place where she could ask questions about her newfound faith. She heard women openly share their experiences, which led her to experiment upon the Word. She received her patriarchal blessing. She's been to the temple. She serves in the Church. I think of President Hinckley's counsel to me. Women need to be together in an environment that bolsters faith. Relief Society provides that environment. I thought of the Stripling Warriors when I heard the son of a Relief Society sister say, I've been blessed by the faith and example of my mother. 
By the time I became a priesthood holder, I had learned as much about home teaching from my mother's visiting teaching efforts as by my father's example of home teaching. Her faith in the priesthood affects my faith and strengthens my desire to be a worthy elder. Brothers and sisters, I am changed and I am blessed. I am better because of Relief Society. And I believe we all are. I pray that mothers and daughters will participate with more vigor, that husbands will support their wives, and that both mothers and fathers will prepare their daughters for Relief Society. I encourage priesthood leaders to shepherd God's daughters, young and old, into Relief Society, one of the many miracles of the Restoration. As we take these steps, we will be overwhelmed with gratitude for this sacred organization. Because Relief Society is divinely designed, it blesses not only women but the family and the Church. I testify that it is a fundamental part of the Lord's restored gospel because it abides in charity. His pure love. Of this I bear witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brethren, I hope you noticed this morning, as President Hinckley uh, prepared to announce the names of two new apostles, he spoke of fasting and praying to know the Lord's will. Fasting has always been a practice among God's people. In our day, it is a commandment given by the Lord to all members of the Church. In addition to occasional special fasts that we might have for personal or family reasons, we are expected to fast once a month on the first Sunday. We are taught that there are three aspects to a proper fast day observance. First, abstaining from food and drink for two consecutive meals, or in other words, 24 hours. Second, attending fast and testimony meeting. And third, giving a generous fast offering. For the Pratt family, our regular fasts have always been from the Saturday noon meal to the Sunday noon meal. That way we fast for two meals, Saturday evening and Sunday morning meals. Although there is no church standard for fasting except that it should be for 24 hours and two meals, we have found a spiritual advantage in, in attending fast and testimony meeting towards the end of the fast. For those who are physically able, Fasting is a commandment. Speaking of our monthly fast day, President Joseph F. Smith said, The Lord has instituted the fast on a reasonable and intelligent basis. Those who can are required to comply. It is a duty from which they cannot escape. It is left with the people as a matter of conscience to exercise wisdom and discretion. But those should fast who can. None are exempt from this. It is required of the saints, old and young, in every part of the Church. I fear, brethren, that too many of us are either not fasting on fast day or we are doing so in a lackadaisical manner. If we are guilty of taking our fast day for granted or simply fasting on Sunday morning instead of making it for two complete meals of 24 hours, we are depriving ourselves and our families of the choice spiritual experiences and blessings that can come from a true fast. 
If all we do is abstain from food and drink for 24 hours and pay our fast offerings, we have missed a wonderful opportunity for spiritual growth. On the other hand, if we have a special purpose in our fasting, the fast will have much more meaning. Perhaps we can take time as a family before beginning our fast to talk about what we hope to accomplish by this fast. This could be done in a family home evening the week before Fast Sunday, or perhaps in a brief family meeting at the time of a family's prayer. When we fast with purpose, we have something to focus our attention on besides our hunger. The purpose of our fast may be a very personal one. Fasting can help us overcome personal flaws and sins. It can help us overcome our weaknesses and help them become strengths. Fasting can help us become more humble, less prideful, less selfish, and more concerned about the needs of others. It can help us see more clearly our own mistakes and weaknesses and help us be less prone to criticize others. Or our fast may have a focus on a family challenge. A family fast might help increase love and appreciation among family members and reduce the amount of contention in the family. Or we might fast as a couple to strengthen our marriage bonds. As priesthood holders, a purpose of our fast might be to seek the Lord's guidance in our callings as President Hinckley has demonstrated. Or we might fast with our home teaching companion to know how to help one of our families. Throughout the scriptures, the term fasting is usually combined with prayer. Ye shall continue in prayer and fasting from this time forth, is the Lord's counsel. Fasting without prayer is just going hungry for 24 hours. But fasting combined with prayer brings increased spiritual power. When the disciples were unable to cure a boy who was possessed of an evil spirit, they asked the Savior, Why could not we cast him out? Jesus responded, This kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Let us begin our fast with prayer. This could be kneeling at the table as we finish the meal with which we begin the fast. That prayer would be a natural thing as we speak to our Heavenly Father concerning the purpose of our fast and plead with Him for His help in accomplishing our goals. Likewise, let us end our fast with prayer. We could very appropriately kneel at the table before we sit down to consume the, the meal with which we break our fast. We could thank the Lord for His help during the fast and for what we have felt and learned from the fast. In addition to beginning and ending prayer, we should seek the Lord often in personal prayer throughout the fast. Now, we should not expect our young children to fast for the recommended two meals, but let us teach them the principles of fasting. If fasting is discussed and planned in a family setting, the small children will, will be aware that their parents and older siblings are fasting and they will understand the purpose of the fast. They should participate in the family prayers to begin and end the fast. This way, when they reach the proper age, they will be eager to fast with the rest of the family. In, in our family, we have done this by encouraging our children between 8 and 12 years of age to fast for one meal. 
Then, as they have turned 12 and received the Aaronic priesthood and entered young women, we have encouraged them to fast for two complete meals. After chastising ancient Israel for fasting improperly, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks in beautiful poetic language of a proper fast. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? If we fast and pray with the purpose of repenting of sins and overcome personal weaknesses, surely we are seeking to loose the bands of wickedness in our lives. If the purpose of our fast is to be more effective in teaching the gospel and serving others in our Church callings, we are surely striving to undo the heavy burdens of others. If we are fasting and praying for the Lord's help in our missionary efforts, aren't we desiring to let the oppressed go free? If the purpose of our fast is to increase our love for our fellow man and overcome our selfishness, our pride, and having our hearts set upon the things of this world, surely we are seeking to break every yoke. The Lord continues describing the proper fast. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, thou cover him, and that thou not hide thyself from thine own flesh? It is truly a wonderful thing that through our fast offerings today we can feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, and clothe the naked. If we fast properly, the Lord promises, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Then thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. It is my prayer that we can improve our fasts so that we can enjoy these beautiful promised blessings. It is my testimony that as we draw near to the Lord through our fasting and prayer, He will draw near to us. I testify that He lives, that He loves us, that He wants to draw near to us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I am grateful to speak to this worldwide audience of priesthood holders. It is now 8 a.m. Sunday morning in the Philippines, my home for the last two years. I send greetings to my beloved associates in that nation and to all of you. I assume there are no boys in this audience, only young men who are holders of the priesthood. The Apostle Paul wrote that when he was a child, he understood as a child.
But when he became a man, he put away such things. You young men are doing the same, so I will speak to you as one man speaks to another. From your position on the road of life, you young men have many miles to go and many choices to make as you seek to return to our Heavenly Father. Along the road, there are many signs that beckon. Satan is the author of some of these invitations. He seeks to confuse and deceive us, to get us on a low road that leads away from our eternal destination. In the beginning, when a powerful spirit was cast down for rebellion, he became Satan, the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive at his will. He and the spirits who follow him are still deceiving the world. Modern revelation declares that Satan hath sought to deceive you, that he might overthrow you. Satan's methods of deception are enticing—music, movies, and other media, and the glitter of a good time. When Satan's lies succeed in deceiving us, we become vulnerable to his power. Here are some ways the devil will try to deceive us. God's commandments and the teachings of his prophets warn against each of them. One kind of deception seeks to mislead us about who we should follow. In speaking of the last days, the Savior taught, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. In other words, many will seek to deceive us by saying that they or their teachings will save us, so there is no need for a Savior or his gospel. The Book of Mormon describes this as the power of the devil to lead away and deceive the hearts of the people to believe that the doctrine of Christ was a foolish and a vain thing. Satan also seeks to deceive us about right and wrong and to persuade us that there is no such thing as sin. This detour typically starts off with what seems to be only a small departure. Just try it once. One beer or one cigarette or one porno movie won't hurt. What all of these departures have in common is that each of them is addictive. Addiction is a condition in which we surrender part of our power of choice. When we do that, we give the devil power over us. The prophet Nephi described where this leads. The devil says there is no hell, and I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he whispereth in their ears until he grasps them with his awful chains, from whence there is no deliverance. If we choose the wrong road, we choose the wrong destination. For example, a friend of many years told me that her husband, always a good kid in high school, took a few drinks he thought would help him forget some problems. Before he knew what was happening, he was addicted. Now he is not able to support his family, and he is ineffective at almost everything he tries to do. Alcohol governs his life, and he cannot seem to break free of its grip. The prophet Nephi warns against another kind of deception. And others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security, that they will say, 
All is well in Zion, yea, Zion prospereth, all is well. And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. Those who fall for this deception may profess to believe in God, but they do not take his commandments or his justice seriously. They are confident in their own prosperity and conclude that God must have accepted their chosen route. Yea, and there shall be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it shall be well with us. And there shall also be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin. There is no harm in this. And do all these things, for tomorrow we die. And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Surely you have heard and seen these arguments, brethren. They will come at you in classrooms and hallways, in what you read and in what you see in popular entertainment. Many in the world deny the need for a Savior. Others deny that there is any right or wrong, and they scoff at the idea of sin or a devil. Still others rely on the mercy of God and ignore his justice. The prophet said, There shall be many which shall teach after this manner false and vain and foolish doctrines. The Apostle Paul gave pointed warnings against the perilous times that would come in the last days. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, despisers of those that are good, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. He also said that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In a moment I will discuss what Paul told young Timothy about how to avoid this wickedness. The Apostle gave another warning against being deceived by the devil and his pawns. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, brethren. Heed the ancient and modern prophetic warnings against thievery, drunkenness, and all forms of sexual sin. The deceiver seeks to destroy your spirituality by all of these means. Paul warns against those who lie in wait to deceive by the slight of man and cunning craftiness. Beware of the slick package and the glitz of a good time. What the devil portrays as fun can be spiritually fatal. As we look about us, we see many who are practicing deception. We hear of prominent officials who have lied about their secret acts. We learn of honored sports heroes who have lied about gambling on the outcome of their games or using drugs to enhance their performance. We see less well-known persons engaging in evil acts in secret they would never do in public. Perhaps they think no one will ever know, but God always knows. 
and he has repeatedly warned that the time will come when our iniquities shall be spoken upon the housetops and our secret acts shall be revealed. Be not deceived, the Apostle Paul taught. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. In other words, if we indulge in drugs or pornography or other evils that the Apostle called sowing to the flesh, eternal law dictates that we harvest corruption rather than life eternal. That is the justice of God, and mercy cannot rob justice. If an eternal law is broken, the punishment affixed to that law must be suffered. Some of this can be satisfied by the Savior's atonement, but the merciful cleansing of a soiled sinner only comes after repentance, which for some sins is a prolonged and painful process. Otherwise, he that exercises no faith unto repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. Therefore, only unto him that has faith unto repentance is brought about the great and eternal plan of redemption. Fortunately, repentance is possible. For the most serious sins, we need to confess to our bishop and seek his loving help. For other sins, it may be sufficient for us to confess to the Lord and to whomever we have wronged. Most lying is of this sort. If you have deceived someone, resolve now to stop carrying the burden. Make it right and get on with your life. Now I wish to speak about how each of us can avoid being deceived on matters of eternal importance. I have two texts. The first is what Paul taught Timothy after giving him the warning I quoted earlier. Continue in the things you have learned and been assured of, he wrote, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. In other words, you have been taught righteousness and assured of its truth. So stay with it. Continuing, Paul reminded his young friend that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith in our Savior. Hold fast to the Scriptures, whose teachings protect us against evil. The parable of the ten virgins teaches that when the Lord comes in his glory, of all followers of Christ invited to the wedding feast, only half will be given entrance. The inspired explanation of this parable reveals our second source of protection. For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire but shall abide the day. The other half will be denied entrance because they are not prepared. It is not enough to have received the truth. We must also have taken the Holy Spirit for our guide and not be deceived. 
How do we take the Holy Spirit for our guide? We must repent of our sins each week and renew our covenants by partaking of the sacrament with clean hands and a pure heart, as we are commanded to do. Only in this way can we have the divine promise that we will always have His Spirit to be with us. That Spirit is the Holy Ghost, whose mission is to teach us, to lead us to truth, and to testify of the Father and the Son. To avoid being deceived, we must also follow, follow the promptings of that Spirit. The Lord taught this principle in the 46th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. That which the Spirit testifies unto you, even so I would that ye should do in all holiness of heart, walking uprightly before me, considering the end of your salvation, doing all things with prayer and thanksgiving, that ye may not be seduced by evil spirits or doctrines of devils or the commandments of men. Wherefore, beware, lest ye are deceived, and that ye may not be deceived. Seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. The Holy Ghost will protect us against being deceived, but to realize that wonderful blessing, we must always do the things necessary to retain that spirit. We must keep the commandments, pray for guidance, and attend church and partake of the sacrament each Sunday. And we must never do anything to drive away that spirit. Specifically, we should avoid pornography, alcohol, tobacco, and drugs, and always, always avoid violations of the law of chastity. We must never take things into our bodies or do things with our bodies that drive away the Spirit of the Lord and leave us without our spiritual protection against deception. I will conclude by describing another subtle form of deception, the idea that it is enough to hear and believe without acting on that belief. Many prophets have taught against that deception. The Apostle James wrote, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. King Benjamin taught, and now if you believe all these things, see that ye do them. And in modern revelation, the Lord declares, If you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing the things which I have commanded you and required of you. It is not enough to know that God lives, that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and that the gospel is true. We must take the high road by acting upon that knowledge. It is not enough to know that President Gordon B. Hinckley is God's prophet. We must put his teachings to work in our lives. It is not enough to have a calling. We must fulfill our responsibilities. The things taught in this conference are not just to fill our minds. They are to motivate and guide our actions. I testify that these things are true. And I pray that we will do all that is necessary to avoid the deceptions of the devil. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brothers and sisters, I recently returned from an assignment in Asia where we met with faithful saints and missionaries and one meeting there was in the metropolitan area 
There were approximately 14,000 Church members living among a population of 21 million people. Now, if that same ratio were applied to this meeting in the conference center today, we would have only 13 members of the Church scattered among this congregation of over 20,000. This experience impressed upon me how deeply grateful we must all be to know that after ages of darkness and apostasy, Joseph Smith beheld a remarkable vision of the Father and the Son in the sacred grove. Clearly in our world today it is a rare and precious thing to have a testimony that God our Heavenly Father lives, that His Son Jesus Christ is our Savior and Redeemer, and that the priesthood authority to administer the gospel of Jesus Christ as once again upon the earth. The profound blessing of having a witness or an understanding of these truths cannot be measured or ever taken for granted. A personal testimony, as has been discussed in, by others today, is a foundation of our faith. It is the building power that makes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints unique in the lives of its members as compared with all other religious denominations in the world. The doctrine of the Restoration is glorious in itself, but the thing that makes it powerful and imbues it with great meaning is the personal testimonies of Church members worldwide who accept the restoration of the gospel and strive to live its teachings every day of their lives. A testimony is a witness or a confirmation of eternal truth impressed upon individual hearts and souls through the Holy Ghost, whose primary ministry is to testify particularly as it relates to the Father and the Son. When one receives a testimony of truth through this divinely appointed process, it immediately begins to have impact on that person's life. According to Alma the Younger, it will begin to swell within your breasts and you'll feel these swelling motions. You'll begin to say within yourselves, The word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. Simply stated, testimony, real testimony, born of the Spirit and confirmed by the Holy Ghost, changes lives, changes how you think and what you do, it changes what you say, it affects every priority you set and every choice you make. To have a real and abiding testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be spiritually born of God, to receive His image in your countenances, and to experience the mighty change in your hearts. Now, like everything else in life, testimonies grow and develop through experience and service. We often hear some members, and especially children, bear their testimonies, listing the things for which they are thankful. They are thankful and show express love of family, the Church, 
their teachers, their friends. For them, the gospel is something that is they're grateful for and because it makes them feel happy and secure. This is good, but it's just a beginning. Testimonies need to be much more. They need to be anchored very early to the first principles of the gospel. A testimony of the reality of Heavenly Father's love, of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and the effect of His Atonement on every son and daughter of God brings about the desire to repent and to live worthy of the companionship of the Holy Ghost. It also brings a confirmation to our soul of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days. Real testimony of these precious truths come as a witness by the Holy Ghost after sincere, dedicated effort including teachings in the home, prayer, scripture study, service to others, and diligent striving to be obedient to Heavenly Father's commandments. The gain and forever hold on to a testimony of the gospel truths is worth, brothers and sisters, whatever price in spiritual preparation we may be required to pay. My experience throughout the Church leads me to worry that too many of our members' testimonies linger on, I'm thankful and I love, and too few are able to say with humble but sincere clarity, I know. As a result, our meetings sometimes lack the testimony, rich spiritual underpairings that stir the soul and have meaning, meaningful positive impact on the lives of all those who hear them. Our testimony meetings need to be more centered on the Savior, the doctrines of the gospel, the blessings of the restoration, and the teachings of the scriptures. We need to be careful and replace some of the stories and the travelogues and the lectures with pure testimony. Those who are entrusted to speak and teach in our meetings need to do so with doctrinal power that will be both heard and felt, lifting the spirits and edifying our people. You'll remember the heart of King Benjamin's powerful sermon to his people was his personal witness of the Savior who at that time had yet to be born into mortality. At one point in the King's sermon, when he had just borne witness to the people, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy because of the exceeding faith which they had in Jesus Christ who should come. And that is because the Spirit cannot be restrained when pure testimony of Christ is born. Thus, King Benjamin's people were so inspired by his testimony that their lives were changed right there on the spot, and they became a new people. Remember also Abinadi and Alma. Abinadi infuriated wicked King Noah with his courageous testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually this great missionary offered the ultimate sacrifice for his witness and faith but not before his pure testimony touched one believing heart. Alma, one of King Noah's priests, 
repented of his sins, accepted Jesus as the Christ, and went about privately among the people and began to teach the words of Abinadi. Many were converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a result of Abinadi's powerfully born testimony of the Savior, believed by one soul, Alma. The Apostle Paul also bore fervent testimony of Christ and converted many through his missionary labors. He did not shrink in bearing his testimony before King Agrippa. So mighty were his words that even this influential representative of the Roman Empire was moved to exclaim, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now the lesson, I believe, is clear. Having a testimony alone is not enough. In fact, when we are truly converted, we cannot be restrained from testifying. And as it was with the apostles and faithful members of old, so it is also our privilege, our duty, our solemn obligation to declare the things which we know to be true. Again, please keep in mind that we are talking about sharing real testimony, not just speaking generally about the things we're thankful for. While it's always good to express love and gratitude, such expressions do not constitute the kind of testimony that will ignite a fire of belief in the lives of others. To bear testimony is to bear witness by the power of the Holy Ghost, to make a solemn declaration of truth based on knowledge or belief. Clear declaration of truth makes a difference in people's lives. That is what changes hearts. That is what the Holy Ghost can confirm in the hearts of God's children. Although we can have testimonies of many things as members of the Church, there are basic truths we need to constantly teach one another and share with those not of our faith. Testify that God is our Father and that Jesus is the Christ. The plan of salvation is centered on the Savior's Atonement. Joseph Smith restored the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Book of Mormon is evidence that our testimony is true. Miraculous things happen when members join with missionaries and share pure testimony with those who are not members of the Church. For example, while many people were touched by Alma's testimony in the land of Ammonihah, when Amulek stood and added his testimony to Alma's, the people began to be astonished, seeing there was more than one witness who testified. The same thing can happen with us today. As we stand together, the Lord will help us find many more of His sheep who will know His voice as we unitedly share our testimonies with them. Many years ago, Brigham Young told of an early missionary in the Church who was asked to share his testimony with a large group of people. According to President Young, this particular elder had never been able to say he knew that Joseph Smith was a prophet. 
He would have preferred to just say a prayer and then leave, but the circumstances made that impossible. So he started to speak, and as soon as he got out, got Joseph out, his prophet was next, and from that his tongue was loosened, and he continued talking until near sundown. President Young used this experience to teach that the Lord pours out His Spirit upon a man when he testifies that which the Lord gives him to testify of. The Prophet's brother Hiram understood this and testified fearlessly of divine truth as it had been revealed to his brother Joseph and confirmed in his own heart. His testimony blessed the lives of many, including Parley P. Pratt. When Parley first encountered the Book of Mormon, Hiram took him into his own home, spent the night teaching and testifying to him. He bore witness of the prophetic mantle that rested upon Joseph and of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Shortly thereafter, Hiram set aside his own needs and went with Parley to honor his request to be baptized. We may never fully comprehend or be able to measure the far-reaching effects of Hiram's one-on-one -on -one testimony to Parley P. Pratt. In additional, addition to Parley's faithful posterity, his apostolic witness and ministry, missionary service drew countless souls into the kingdom of God, including among those who joined the Church as a direct result of his ministry in Canada were Joseph Fielding and his sisters Mary and Mercy. After his first wife, Jerusa, died, Hiram met and married Mary Fielding, and from their marriage came President Joseph S. Smith and countless other Church members and leaders. Now, brothers and sisters, I realize that not all testimonies will return such a blessing as Hiram's did. Joseph Kimber, a humble new convert in Thatcham, England, bore his simple testimony to a fellow farmhand. I believe Brother Kimber's witness of Joseph Smith and the Restoration is what ignited the fire of belief in 17-year-old Henry Ballard's heart and caused him to ask to be baptized. Generations of the Ballard family are the beneficiaries of that humble testimony. Members and missionaries in our day can have experiences of converting others by living our lives as best we can and being prepared to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. A friend recently told me about being on a 90-minute bus ride in Brazil. He felt impressed to go to the back of the bus to speak to the young people who had been serving as guides for his group of businessmen. An associate of his father followed him to the back of the bus and heard his testimony of the truthfulness of the restored gospel. This man later said, when I heard your testimony, I had the distinct feeling go through my whole body that these things were true, and he and his wife will soon be baptized. 
The missionaries are now preparing to teach the lessons not as memorized dialogue or rote presentation, but rather they will outline gospel principles in an organized way, calling upon the Spirit to direct how they communicate gospel truth to investigators spirit to spirit and heart to heart. Brothers and sisters, join together with the missionaries in sharing your precious testimony every day witnessing at every opportunity the glorious message of the Restoration. The fire of your testimony is all that you need in order to introduce the gospel to many more of our Father's children. Trust in the Lord and never underestimate the impact your testimony can have upon the lives of others as you bear it with the power of the Spirit. Doubt and fear are the tools of Satan. The time has come for all of us to overcome any fear and boldly take every opportunity to share our testimonies of the gospel. May the Lord bless you as you continue to nurture your testimonies through your prayers, your personal gospel study, and your acts of service. With great joy, I humbly testify, our Heavenly Father loves us. Jesus is the Christ. Joseph Smith restored the fullness of the everlasting gospel, and the Book of Mormon testifies of these truths. We're led by a living prophet today, and I pray that the Lord may bless you, my dear brothers and sisters, as you teach and testify, which I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Recently, I had an engaging conversation with a young man who was contemplating a mission. As we talked, it became apparent that he was struggling with his decision because he was questioning the strength of his testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted to know why he had not received more clear answers to his prayers and study of the scriptures. This young man, whom I will call Jim, was raised in the mission field in a home with loving parents who were doing their best to teach gospel principles to their children. He's an outstanding athlete and popular among his friends at school. However, he is the only one of a very few LDS students in a large high school. Having raised our family in the mission field, I quickly related to Jim's challenges of wanting to stay true to gospel principles while being accepted by friends, yet friends whose values and beliefs generally differed from his. He was looking for further confirmation of his testimony of Jesus Christ and the restoration of the gospel. Today I speak to Jim and many others like him, young men and young women across the world who are unsure about their testimonies but very much want to develop strong, vibrant testimonies that will guide them through the shoals of life that lie ahead. I also speak to those adults who have not yet felt deeply the spirit of the gospel in their lives. In the absence of a compelling testimony, some have let their daily thoughts and actions become so focused on the things of the world that they have minimized the influence of the light of the gospel in their everyday lives. 
And then, as Elder Neil A. Maxwell has so eloquently described, also included are those honorable members who are skimming over the surface instead of deepening their discipleship and who are casually engaged rather than anxiously engaged. As I attended the funeral services of Elder Neil A. Maxwell and Elder David B. Haight and listened to their well-deserved tributes, I more fully internalized the extraordinary examples of testimony and discipleship that the lives of these two great brethren demonstrated. I kept pondering how their examples could help strengthen our testimonies and deepen our resolves to come closer to Christ. These two great disciples of Christ exemplify President Gordon B. Hinckley's admonition to all of us when he said, I have been quoted as saying, Do the best you can, but I want to emphasize that it be the very best. We are too prone to be satisfied with mediocre performance. We are capable of doing so much better. Surely, President Hinckley's counsel and encouragement applies as much to the development and strengthening of our testimonies of Jesus Christ as anything else. True testimonies bring the light of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ into our lives and focus all of us toward the same goal of returning to our Father in Heaven. Yet our individual testimonies come through varied experiences and at different stages in our life. Like Jim, as a young man, I was privileged to have goodly parents. They taught gospel principles and values to our family by precept and example. As a young boy, I thought I had a testimony. I believed. Then came some personal spiritual experiences through faith, prayer, scripture study, and especially a father's blessings in our home that caused me to think more seriously about the principles I had been taught and believed, but even more deeply about what I was beginning to feel. I will be forever grateful to parents who helped coach me through those precious spiritual experiences. They have had a lasting impact on me and on the strength of my testimony. I think Alma must have had us in mind as he was teaching the Zoramites how to gain testimonies of the truth. But behold, if you will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, an exercise of particle of faith, yea, even if you can do no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until you believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. And then Alma went on to compare the word into a seed. He explained that as hearts are opened, it will begin to swell within our breasts. Alma then gave us the key to developing a successful testimony. But if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow, by your faith with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, it shall take root. And behold, it shall be a tree springing up into everlasting life. And then the promise, Then, my brethren, ye shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and patience and long-suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. Think with me for a moment, brothers and sisters, about what Alma is teaching us. First, we must have a sincere desire to believe. Phrases such as awake, Arouse your faculties, experiment, and exercise a particle of faith are action words that suggest sustained effort on our part. His description of the swelling in our breast describes the feeling of the Holy Spirit. And as Moroni promises, by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. 
To keep that spirit growing, Alma says we must nourish it by faith with great diligence and with patience. And he then promises that the rewards of faith, diligence, patience, and long-suffering will bring forth everlasting life. Like Alma, Latter-day Prophets have been clear in their teachings of the things we need to do to develop and strengthen our testimonies. We have been sent here to work out our individual salvation through the tests and challenges of daily life. We cannot do that by relying heavily upon the borrowed light of someone else's testimony. As we receive inspiration when we hear the Prophets, leaders, and peers bear their testimonies, those spiritual feelings should further enhance our desire to strengthen our own convictions. To my young friend and to all, wherever you may be, never give up on the Lord. The answers to your prayers may not be as clear or as timely as you'd like, but keep praying. The Lord is listening. And as you pray, ask for help in understanding the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And then do your very best to be worthy to receive those promptings. As you recognize or feel the impressions and whisperings of the Spirit, then act upon them. Daily fervent prayers seeking forgiveness and special help and direction are essential to our lives and the nourishment of our testimonies. When we become hurried, repetitive, casual, or forgetful in our prayers, we tend to lose the closeness of the Spirit, which is so essential in the continual direction we need to successfully manage the challenges of our everyday lives. Family prayer every morning and night adds additional blessings and power to our individual prayers and to our testimonies. Personal, sincere involvement in the scriptures produces faith, hope, and solutions to our daily challenges. Frequent reading and pondering and applying the lessons of the scriptures combined with prayer becomes an irreplaceable part of gaining and sustaining a strong, vibrant testimony. President Spencer W. Kimball reminded us of the importance of consistent scripture reading when he said, I find that when I get casual in my relationship with divinity, and when it seems that no divine voice is speaking, if I immerse myself in the scriptures, the distance narrows and the spirituality returns. The Savior taught, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The strong, unwavering testimonies that so many of you wonderful, faithful members of the Church embrace have come from prayerfully following counsel from our prophets in the scriptures. That same priceless blessing is available to each of us who will earnestly seek it. To my young friend Jim and all others who have made periodic concerns about the strength of their testimonies, know that you are loved and you are watched over daily by your Father in heaven. He will respond as you strive to keep His commandments and reach out for His loving hand. We all share the same promise that the Lord gave to the Prophet Joseph Smith. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Our Prophet's call to do our very best challenges each of us individually and within our families to carefully examine our personal lives and then commit to change those things which will more fully assure our testimonies are strong and secure. Strong testimonies become the driving force for each of us to do much better.
They become the impenetrable bulwark of armor that protects us from the unrelenting things of the world. I bear my witness that we have a loving, caring Father in heaven, and that He and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, appeared to the boy Joseph to usher in the restoration of the gospel in this last dispensation. Jesus Christ heads this Church. President Gordon B. Hinckley is His chosen prophet. I pray that we may have the courage and the conviction to follow the prophet's counsel, and as we do so, our personal testimonies will be secure. That this may be so, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.